Hey, this is Pastor Sean Beatty from Clovis Hills Community Church. We're so glad you're listening to our podcast. If you want more information about the church, go to www.clovishills.com or you can download our app in your iTunes or Google Play Store. Enjoy the podcast. Say good morning to our online community that's listening online. If you're watching on Facebook Live, everyone say hi to them. All right. All right. Hey, we're glad you guys are watching. Um, The people that uh, actually braved the marathon and figured out how to get here, you guys, good job. You guys that are watching online, you're just a little less. So anyways, um, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm just playing with you. So here's the deal. We're doing this series called Take Off Your Grave Clothes. And the whole premise comes out of... The story of Lazarus. In the story of Lazarus, Jesus arrives at Bethany um, and his friend Lazarus has died. Um, He's very close with Lazarus' two sisters and and, and Lazarus. And he ends up calling Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus rises from the dead. Everyone freaks out. And then right away after that, the Jewish leaders plot to have Jesus killed. And when he calls Lazarus out of the grave, Lazarus comes out of the tomb... And it says he came out wrapped in his grave clothes. And he told his friends and family, he said, hey, help take off his grave clothes. And um, there's something in that statement that really is kind of the theme of this whole series. See, part of your life as a Christian is that you put on Christ, that you bury the old. Right? When you get baptized here at Clovis Hills, one of the things we'll say is we'll say, buried with Christ in baptism... Raised to walk in eternal life, right? So you bury the old Jew. You leave the old Jew in the tomb, in the cave, in the grave, in the water, in the dirt, wherever you're going to put it. And the new you, you're putting on Christ. You're you're becoming more and more like Jesus. It's a religious word called sanctification. That's a lot of syllables for 1040 on a Saturday morning. I know. Sunday, leave me alone. Nitpicking details, schmeetails, okay? So anyways, um, sanctification is a big religious word, but here's really what it means. It means you are in a process of becoming the person that God created you to be. And you're always in the process of burying the old you. And that's what we're talking about in this series. And throughout this series, we've had people come and give testimonies of what God's done in their life. And this morning... Uh, I'm going to call my friends out in a minute, but I want them to wait because I want you to know, know something. You guys are scary, okay? <laughs> like, you're all very nice, wonderful people, but this is a giant room, and it's very intimidating when someone gives a testimony. When Lee Strobel came here, Lee Strobel is like, he's spoken all over the world. The crowd's way bigger than this. I remember on Saturday night before Saturday night service, I'm telling Lee, Scott and I are having dinner with him, and we said, listen, this is a tough room to preach in, and it's kind of intimidating when you first get in there. And he looked at us like, I got chunks of food in my teeth older than both of you punks. <laughs> Trying to tell me what to do. And I'm telling you, when he walked off stage Saturday night, he grabbed me and goes, Sean, oh my gosh, I got nervous about three minutes into it. You're right, that's a scary crowd. So, when someone gives a testimony, give them some love, Okay. So my friend Brad and Sherry are going to come out and talk about the process that God has put them through as they're taking off their grave clothes. So give it up for Brad and Sherry. Good morning. Uh, This is our second time doing this together, and Sean's right, it's still scary. Uh, My name's Brad, and this is my wife, Sherry. 
We've been married 26 years now, and we have two sons. We met when we worked together in South Mississippi, where we grew up. We both attended church growing up, and as a married couple, we have attended on and off from the beginning. I am the oldest of three children. I grew up in the projects with our mom. Uh, unfortunately, my mother was physically and emotionally abusive to my, just my sister and I. Uh, we were often beaten with anything from belts to extension cords. However, probably the worst thing for me was when I told her that my uncle, her brother, had molested me. She didn't believe me, or she just chose not to believe me and didn't remove me from the situation. This set the course of my life to be lying, cheating, being secretive, and at the time, those were coping mechanisms, but they would eventually destroy the life, my life and the life of my family in many ways. Uh, hi, I'm Sherry. I am the second of four children. During my childhood, I was raised by both parents until my father passed away when I was 15 years old. Our home life was pretty typical. My father did struggle with some demons. However, we always knew that he loved us. My mother was the glue in our family, though, and she held us together through all those tough times. We often spent time at my grandparents' home, and it was my grandmother in particular who took me to church as I was a child growing up, and she's the one who instilled the knowledge of God into me. Sundays at my grandparents where we would get up and go to church together as a great big family, aunts, uncles, cousins, everyone, and then we would come home to this huge family dinner. Uh, those were some of the best days of my life. Then when I grew up, I got a job. Brad and I met at a grocery store that we worked at. I got pregnant a few months later, and three and a half years later, we got married. We could not have been more unprepared to be married if we had tried. Having had no example of a father in my home, I was incapable of handling the responsibilities of being a husband and father. I soon felt worthless, angry, bitter, and overwhelmed. I often took these feelings out on our oldest son and sometimes my wife. While we were in church on and off, there was no commitment to Christ in our home. This led to the next 25 years of depression for me. In 25 years, I made decisions that have forever scarred the hearts of my family. So it was during these years that my life and our marriage was filled with fear, anger, hate, distrust, and resentment. I became a very hateful and bitter person. I came to hate myself anytime I was even near Brad. Even though we occasionally attended church, neither one of us was dedicated to actually following God's word. We were always believers and knew better, but we failed to shed our will for God's will. Then in 2009, we faced a situation that was beyond our control. I can remember being with my younger son one day and just really wanting to enjoy that time, but I was just gripped by paralyzing fear of the unknown about that situation. I realized for the first time in my life that I needed to trust God. I prayed before, but I had never truly trusted God to deliver. I prayed and I told God, I've done all that I can do. You're going to have to take care of this. Well, he did. He saw us through that situation, and I learned for the first time how to lean on God. God had always caught us, no matter our mistakes, but this time was different. I had truly let go and let God take over. So fast forward to 2013. I retired from the Navy. My mental state had been growing increasingly unstable, and my depression even worse. I began making the most horrific decisions I had ever made. These decisions cost myself and my family any sense of security or stability. Soon, I found myself losing jobs. 
even though prior I had never faced any type of disciplinary issues in the Navy. We ended up having to sell our home, and I took a job here in Clovis. After 14 months and spiraling out of control, I lost another job. So it was at this time that I just thought, I, I can't do this anymore. We'd been together nearly 25 years, and so I called my mom and asked if I could come home. I absolutely hit rock bottom. The past five years since Brad had been out of the Navy was filled with constant fear of what he would do next. Would we end up homeless, have food to eat, or maybe even police at our doors? I didn't know. I no longer had any idea what to expect. So I went home with my family and they rescued me, loving me, encouraging me, and reminding me how much God loved me. They will never know how much their love meant to me. After four years home, I came back to Clovis, but I came back with expectations. If we had any chance, we had to have God. I'd been praying for God's direction in our lives and I had journaled a little bit. Prior to coming to Clovis Hills a year ago this month, um, my journal entries were so sad. I often thought about hurting myself. And in fact, living was a daily struggle. After finding Clovis Hills, my entries had a little more hope in them, but I wasn't out of the woods. Then one evening in December, while Sean was doing the one-on-one -on -one class that we were uh, part of that night, this crazy guy came in. His name was Todd. He was kind of hyper and bouncing all over the place. <laughs> And he talked about this program called Celebrate Recovery and something about hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And we were both like, what is that? I don't know, but let's try it. So we showed up on January 2nd is when we went. And then we both seemed to just really instantly understand that was where God was leading us. That was where we were going to get some extra help. Um, and on January 3rd, I wrote in my journal, there may really be some hope. Uh, since that fateful night in January, I've seen God change my life and our lives in many positive ways. I have a handful of wonderful girlfriends. Originally, I knew no one here other than Brad. Uh, I have a job that has challenged me, and my younger son, who had stayed back where we sold our home, he has moved here, and we're all together again. I no longer struggle just to live each day. I feel joy and am overwhelmed by all God has done for me. <laughs> So now, near, nearly a year later, lots of sincere prayer, sticking to our commitment to follow God, coming to church, celebrate recovery, we are definitely on a far more stable and loving path than we have ever been. We are still a work in progress, but we know now that God is with us. We lean on him and hope one day to lead a couple's ministry. Thank you. All right. Amen. That's awesome. Ooh. There's something about uh, hearing the stories of people and, and, and seeing them in the process of taking their grave clothes off. Remember, it's a process. Uh, anyone we truck up on this stage, you have to understand, their life is still not perfect, including your pastor, okay? And we're, 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 change is a direction. It's not a moment in your life. It's when you point, you know, uh, for many, many people, Dr. Tony Campolo said it this way. He said, most of us have enough Jesus in our life to make us miserable. And what he meant by that was this, is that a lot of us, we, we come out of the, out of the grave and uh, God, Jesus has called us and we get saved and we put our faith in Jesus and we come out in our grave clothes and then we still decide to walk the way we want to go. And what we do is we take aspects of Jesus and we implement it into our life 
so we can go our way. And we treat Jesus like a vitamin, like he's going to make our life better if I take the parts I like about Jesus and go my way. But the truth is, God has such a better life for you if you will lay down the way you're going and trust Jesus and go the Jesus way. And, and, and this is the process of change is when you turn your heart and say, I'm going to go God's way. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Doesn't mean you're going to get there in a straight line. Most of us have been meandering God's way, if we're really honest. So, today we're going to read a little further into the story of Lazarus. And last week we talked about Mar uh, Martha, the older sister, who approached Jesus. And uh, this week we're going to read uh, about Mary. And my friend Brendan is going to come out and he's going to read from the word of the Lord. It's John chapter 11, verse uh, 32 through 38. So if you could rise your feet in honor of God's word, that would be great. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more was deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone. He said, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I want to I just do a little review for a minute because I want you to understand what's going on in this conversation he's having with Mary. Um, because, if, you know, sometimes when we read them in, in little pieces like this, it doesn't give you the full breadth of what's going on. So last week we talked about Martha. And Martha went to Jesus and she said, you know, they had this profound conversation. When, when she went to Jesus, she had a different posture. She said, Lord, if you would have been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And she kind of brings her grief to him in her own way. And um, Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And then she, being a good Jewish woman, gives the kind of good religious uh, Sunday school answer that every good Jew during that time believed and, and thought. And she said, of course he's going to rise again in the last day. And then Jesus flips the script and he says something incredibly powerful, incredibly strong, resolved, in the moment, mind-blowing. And he says, I'm not talking about the last day, Martha. I'm not talking about the resurrection in the future. I'm the resurrection. I am here now for you. And it's this powerful like, whoa, like he's in charge, right? But then Mary comes. This is moments later. Mary comes. She falls at his feet weeping. And, and Jesus went from being this guy in charge, profound, I'm the resurrection. Do you believe, you know, that, that kind of thing. To he, he sees Mary and Mary's weeping at his feet and if you just read the story, Jesus gets sucked under in her grief. He gets taken down in her grief. And he goes from being profound to just kind of speechless. Like, where, where have you laid him? 
So why is that? What's going on there? Because the truth of the matter is, Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew he was about to turn a, turn a funeral into a feast. A funeral into a pate, as they say. So, so what, what, is, what is going on there? First and foremost, you have to understand something about um, ancient literature. Any um, literary critic would tell you right now, that in no way could this be a fictitious story just by this interaction alone. That, you know, the, the way the character Jesus goes from being incredibly strong to sucked into this grief, um, it shows Jesus' humanity. And in the ancient world, if they were just writing a story to tell a point, they would never do that with the main character. So right away you know this is a real story that's going on. This is an eyewitness account that's going on. Any literary critic would tell you that. So why, 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 is, why did John record that though? Because there's got to be something behind Jesus being strong and profound and then boom, sucked into all this grief. Well, I think there's three things and it, we're going to talk about. I didn't put it, fill in the blanks, but if you're taking notes, number one is this. I think this tells us who Jesus is. You can write down who Jesus is. Because in John eleven thirty five, we're going to memorize the scripture this morning. You guys excited? <laughs> Liars. Um, John eleven thirty five says, Jesus wept. Everyone say, Jesus wept. Jesus. Say it like Baptist. Jesus wept. Jesus. There you go. Okay, listen. You just memorized the Bible. Congratulations. You can do that. Shortest verse in all the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. Why? Why did he weep? That word in the original language means to violently cry, okay? And, um, you know, if he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, why is he crying? In verse 36, everyone that's watching thinks he's crying because he's sad that his friend Lazarus is dead. But here's the truth of the matter. Jesus isn't crying for Lazarus. He's not crying for the dead. He knows Lazarus is with the Father right now. As a matter of fact, Lazarus is about to be bummed in a moment. He's going to get sucked out of heaven. I don't know what he was doing in heaven, but it was probably pretty fun. And all of a sudden, he's going to hear his name called. He's like, oh, no. So here's the deal. Jesus is crying for the living, not the dead. And I want you, I, I want you to... To understand why. If you go back in your Bible, and I encourage you guys, bring a Bible to church. I know, I, like, I read the Bible on my phone all the time. But kids, back in the day, they used to put words on paper. And it was called a book. I would encourage you, get one of these too. And write in it. Fill it out. It's okay. Um, God's word is holy, but the pages are still paper. They're meant to make notes in, okay? So, um, I, I encourage you to do that. Because look at verse 33. I want you to look there with me. And it says, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along also weeping, it says, and underline this part, he was deeply moved. Underline deeply moved. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. So sometimes when we translate something into another language, um, the, the feeling of something can get lost in translation. You know, um, and I know there's people in the room that you think the King James Version is the only version of the Bible. And that's, you're allowed to be wrong. That's okay. But um, it, it's a good version, but we need lots of versions, translations. Because the way translation works is not every word can be translated word for word. Sometimes a word in one language is a whole phrase. 
in another language. And sometimes the literal translation is a better translation, and sometimes the phrase, if you can phrase it, it's better, right? If I'm speaking Spanish and I say, como te ama? I'm saying, what, what's your name? If I translate it literally, it's how you call. What's a better translation? What's your name, right? So this word deeply moved and troubled in spirit. Um, it's a word that they use in ancient literature um, it, during the time of Jesus. It would have been more um, a word used to display anger and, and furiousness, just overwhelmed with, with, with emotion in, in this moment. Um, as a matter of fact, they used to describe, in ancient literature, they used this word to describe a horse when it bucks someone off and it starts shaking and snorting in anger. This is the emotion going through Jesus as he's standing at the funeral. He sees Mary weeping at his feet. He sees all the people around weeping. And he sees what death is doing to people. And he's overwhelmed with emotion. And I know... You know, the, the translators of the Bible, they, they're really good at make, you know, they don't want to put too much emotion in Jesus. I don't know why, but they do. And they typically paint Jesus as this dude that's in a robe and he's got blonde hair and he's not wearing shoes. Basically a Californian. And he's like, hey guys, man, it's all good. I never get rattled. He's rattled here. He is rattled. Said he was deeply moved and then in verse 35 he wept. Violently. He, he wept, guys. He cried. So why? Well, I don't know if, if, if you, you realize this. The Jesus, C.S. Lewis put it this way. This is the best way to say it. If, if you, anyone here ever gotten their, their heart broken? Show of hands. So, anyone ever broke your heart? It could be your kids. It could be your spouse. It could be your boyfriend, your girlfriend. You, your first crush, whatever. Um, C.S. Lewis, he said it really well. He, in a grief observed, he said, you know, if you want to avoid having your heart broken, it's very easy. Don't love anything. The more you love, the more you get involved with people and their hurts hurt you. The more you love, the more you will suffer. See, Jesus is looking at his children, and they're all suffering. And he, for in a moment, sees the sting of death, what death does to humanity. And it breaks his heart. You know, death sucks. Can I get an amen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, October 27th, I'm just living my, living my life, and then I get a call. Kelly says, we got to go to the doctor. We get an emergency MRI. We walk back into the, into, the, into the room. The doctor says, you have a tumor the size of a lemon. It, your wife has a tumor the size of a lemon in her head. We need to do emergency surgery. Surgeon comes the next day, talks to us, says, yeah, it's cancerous. It's going to be really bad. We are overwhelmed with grief in that moment. It sweeps us under. And, and we, we didn't know what to do. We just kind of held each other and cried. And here's what I need you to understand. Jesus looking down at that. Jesus looking at his people grieving the fear, the sting of death. This is why he wept violently. And there's no other religion, there's no other God, there's no other philosophy on this planet or in human history that says that God suffers with you when you suffer except for Jesus. If you talk to a Muslim and you say God suffers with you through your problem, he says that's blasphemy. God does not suffer. Allah is all powerful. He would never suffer. 
You talk to a Jew, they would say, God is transcendent. He doesn't suffer. You talk to a Buddhist or a Hindu, they say, well, some of our gods suffer, but yeah, they're not that big a deal, though. <laughs> See, only Jesus is the only belief system that believes that God didn't just sit away far away in heaven and go, oh, that's too bad for you. One day you'll fly away to a nice place. It's only Christianity that says that Jesus stepped into our pain, into the moment. Not for a moment will you be forsaken by Jesus. And he wept with them and for them. A few chapters later in John's gospel, Jesus is beaten, and they call it in the ancient world 40 minus 1. Really what it meant, you know, 40 lashes minus 1 meant that you were beaten right to the point of death, and then they stopped to so you would live and suffer. And he's beaten to the point of death, and then they stop so he'll live and suffer. They put a robe on him, they put a crown on him, they put him for the very people that, you know, a couple days, you know, a day earlier were chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and Pilate, the, go- the Roman governor, says in Latin, he says, echo e omo. And, and Jesus is standing there, and they all start cheering and throwing crap at him. And echo e homo means, behold the man. Behold the man God. This is your king. And you have this picture of a suffering king. Now I know that does not bode well with 21st century America. In 21st century America, you want a pastor that you pull a string on his back and he goes, God's going to give you everything you want. It's awesome. Your life's going to be happy. Okay, listen, that's not how it works though. The truth of the scripture is most people weren't happy in the scripture. They had joy though. They had peace. They had patience. They had kindness. And God in his suffering does something incredible. And that leads me to the next part because it talks about who we are. I don't know if you know. I read something two years ago in the book of 1 Peter that has been blowing my mind for two years. I've been chewing on this for a long time. And I still don't think I have a full grasp of what God is teaching in this these two verses right here. I want to read it to you because this this is astounding. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. Let's pause there for a minute. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his own body, arm yourself with the same attitude. Now, I know this is Clovis and two-thirds of the room is armed right now. You're carrying Okay, that's an exaggeration, half. But here, but listen. Why do you arm yourselves? You arm yourself to protect yourself, but also as, as an offense sometimes too. Okay, so it says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself with the same attitude of suffering. And then he says, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they don't live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Think about that, guys. Arm yourself with the same attitude. See, our culture is averse to suffering. It's, it, we don't like suffering. You know, none of you woke up this morning and said, hey, let's go to church and suffer. You know, that's, that's you know, only the people that ran 26 miles today thought that. The rest of us are sane. Um, <laughs> If you're a runner, I'm kidding. But um, here's what I, I, need, I need you to know. 
Like, we are averse to suffering. As a matter of fact, much of what we do in our culture is to avoid suffering. If I have a headache, I take Advil. I take Tylenol. If I'm old school, I take aspirin. If I'm a hippie, I chew on a root or put some essential oils on me or whatever it is that you do. Okay? So here, here's the deal. We do that with everything, though. I'll give you a great example. Yesterday, I was just in the worst mood. I was just sad all day. Just didn't, not feeling it. Sad pastor that preaches sucks. Not fun, you know. You all kind of leave like, man, no, God doesn't love me. Um, so I'm driving to church, and I'm just, I can't get out of the funk. And um, do you, you know what I did? I pulled over at the gas station, and I got some, junk, some food, and I ate it, and I felt better. Because here's what happened. I ate the food. It tasted good. I had a serotonin uptake. It took my mind off my sadness for a moment, and I felt better. And I went to church, and I preached, and, and, and forgot about how sad I was. Guys, that's what we do all the time, though, is if you had a hurt in your life, like uh, Brad, you know, had all those hurts in his life, his habits, the bad habits that developed in his life were merely fruit of the hurt that actually happened. So here's what happens is you don't feel good about yourself, so uh, I'm going to go buy something. It'll make me feel better. Or, I, or you don't, um, you know, so, something's not going right in your life, so I'm going to gamble a little more. Or I'm going to drink a little more. Or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going to starve myself a little more, throw up a little more. I'm going to cut myself to get my mind off it. Or I'm going to, uh, you know, I'm going to immerse myself in social media. That way I don't have to think about it. Or I'm, you know, I'm going to take 50 million selfies and post them on myself so I don't have to think about it. See, this is what human being, beings do because we all have hurts. Hurt people hurt people and we all got them. And what we're doing is we're reaching for some kind of pill to take the pain away. And the medicine never cures it. It just takes the pain away for a moment and takes our mind off it. But that pain is still there. And the more you do that, the wound in us festers. And eventually, there's not enough social media. You'll never be beautiful enough. You'll never have the raise. You'll never have the job that's going to make you feel happy. You'll never look good enough. You'll never be good enough. You'll never feel good enough. And all of those things, you need more of it, more of it, more of it, more of it. And before you know, those things own you. You don't own them. Okay. Oh, I've got some Baptists in the room here. So listen. I'll give you a great example. My, um, you get a guy who comes to my office, a couple comes to my office, and uh, he gets caught looking at pornography. And she's incredibly hurt. She feels betrayed. She's, how could you do this? She's shaming him, and, and he feels shameful, and he feels like an idiot, and she's so mad and doesn't know what to do. And he, he, you know, this is just something that's been reoccurring in his life, and she's fed up with it, and it's all going on. By the way, um, men don't just struggle with pornography, but I'm going to let you in on a secret, everyone. Mo a lot of men do, Okay. It, it, it is, but women struggle with it as much now too. It's, it's becoming more and more prevalent with women as well. And the worst thing you can do if your spouse is sh struggling with pornography, as much as you feel hurt and betrayed, is shame them. Because shame always drives the sin deeper. They will just hide it more. And you say, well, they just need to get self-disciplined and, and get some more self-discipline. And the, the person, the guy, the husband's like, you're right, I got to be more self-disciplined. Well, where is he going to get the self-discipline from? Think about that for a minute. Like, do you just go, 
I need some discipline. Okay, I got it. That's like when your car runs out of gas and you tell your car, get more self-gas. No, someone's got to help put the discipline in him. He's not going to do it on his own. He's going to try real hard for a couple weeks, and then he's going to get stressed out, and he's going to go right back to it. Or something bad's going to happen, or he's going to be feeling bad about himself, or she doesn't want to talk to him anymore because she feels betrayed, and he's lonely. And the girl on the screen thinks he's awesome. The girl in the fantasy thinks he's the bomb. And everywhere else is failing. So you get away from it that way. So... I told this guy, man, you, you, you need to get in a group with some other, other dudes that can help you have self-discipline. And he's, you know, I don't know, I don't I said, well, how long do you want to suffer? So he gets in a group. We have a group on Tuesday nights at, at Clovis Hills for guys like that um, and, and gals. And um, he joins this group. It's all guys. And they begin leaning into their suffering, suffering together. And all of a sudden, he, he's starting to find a little freedom from it. See, there's a thing that happens in the human brain, the way God made you. You, you have to understand the way God made you. That when you, when you suffer, the first thing that triggers in, in your brain is called the amygdala. That's, that's the fight or flight part of your brain. And you will either, you'll either fight it and, and just kind of rage up and power up on it, which doesn't necessarily isn't the best thing to do, or you'll flight and you'll look for some way to cope with it by looking at it. So, so my friend, his, his thing is he ne never felt loved. So he would go to that when he was stressed out or whatever. That was his way of, of flighting. And um, when stress hit the amygdala, he would grab at the pill, right? Whatever the thing it is that comforts you. That takes the pain away temporarily. When he got with these guys and they began to suffer together, God has made you in a way that it takes the, the trauma that hit your amygdala and it actually jumps the amygdala, amygdala gate to the cerebral cortex. The cerebral cortex, friends, is where all the good decisions are made. All those bad decisions we made in our life, you know where you made most of those? Amygdala. And he begins to process with these guys. And he's able to jump the amygdala gate. I'll give you a great example. Psychologist uh, Henry Cloud, he talked about it. You ever wonder why um, we, when, we, when we're really sad, when we cry, it's visible on our face? I'm not talking about like a... I'm talking like the ugly cry when you're really weeping. Right? Why, why would God have made us that way that everyone would see it? Wouldn't it have been easier... Is when you're really sad, instead of tears falling out of your face, and you get the ugly cry that came out of your armpits. Right? You could just get some tear of perspirant, push it down. No one would know I was sad. I'm good. See, but the truth of the matter is, God made you that way so that when you were mourning, when you were leaning into your suffering, when you were leaning into your sadness, think about this. Think about this. Someone would see it and empathize with you and come face to face with you, come alongside you. And then what happens if you study grief and what happens in the brain, that trauma jumps the amygdala gate and goes right to the cerebral cortex. We were made to suffer together. A great example is, remember the good old days when they used to do testings on animals? I'm kidding, animal lovers. 
I'm totally kidding. I'm just trying to make sure you're still awake. Some of you are like, <laughs> you had extra hour of sleep too, and you're still sleeping on me. Listen, they used, they used to do that though, and they had, they, you know, you'd put, they put a monkey in a cage, and they'd run stress tests on the monkey. And they put the monkey in the cage, hook it up, and then they start banging on the cage, flashing lights, sirens, loud noises, all kinds of stuff. And the monkey's stress levels would go off the chart. And then they'd take the monkey out, they'd wait a few weeks, you know, let them forget about it. And then they'd put the monkey back in the cage, and then they'd put another monkey in the cage with them. So there'd be two monkeys in the cage. They'd run the exact same test. Did you know that the stress levels in those monkeys were close to two-thirds lower when they were together? See, because we're created to suffer together. And that creates a profound spiritual question for you. Who's your monkey? <laughs> right? Look at your neighbor right now and say, I'll be your monkey, baby. Wait, if they're not your spouse, don't say baby, because that's weird. Matter of fact, if you don't know them, don't say I'm your monkey. Don't worry. Um, but the point, that's the whole point. That's why at church we do growth groups. So you can have some monkeys. It's why if you're in deep need, you go to celebrate recovery because there's a bunch of monkeys there for you. So my friend loses his job. And six months earlier, he would have went right to the porn. Or maybe drinking. Or maybe both. But he loses his job. He's freaking out. My house is going to foreclose. My son's in college. I'm going to have to bring him home. My other kid's got braces. He's going to have chiclets all over his face. Um, I, you know, my wife's going to leave me. I keep losing jobs. He's freaking out. And instead of going to the porn, instead of going to the pill, the thing to numb him, he calls his monkey, he calls his buddy in his group and says, I lost my job. I'm freaking out. And he says, I'll be right there. They hang out that night. Trauma leaps the amygdala gate to the cerebral cortex, he gets a plan. Because he who suffers in the body is done with sin. Do, do you understand how God wired you? This book works. I'm letting you know, it works. It really does. So, that leads me to this last point. I talked about who Jesus was, who we are. But I want to tell you what he came to do. See, Jesus knows in this moment, if he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, it's going to put him in the tomb. He's two miles from Jerusalem. Last time he was in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he ticked them off and they were ready to kill him then. And he escaped. And he knows if I go in and I raise this guy from the dead, I'm dead. But here's what I, 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 if you don't understand anything from this message today, it's hopefully this grabs your heart because this is the most important thing. Is here's the deal. Every one of us in this room, we all got things that we're not proud of. We all got sin that we're not proud of. But here's what I want you to know. Jesus is not mad at you. Jesus is not here to punish you. See, Jesus believe it or not, loves you so much that he's weeping with you in your suffering because probably the habits you have are actually the fruit of some suffering that you've got going on that you haven't dealt with. And he loves you so much. He loves you so much that he decided, I'm going to go in the grave for you. I'm going to take God's punishment for you because I love you so much. I don't want you to have the full wrath of God. I'll take it on. And, and if I take it on, then you can be free. And the Bible says 
It says it very clearly. It gives all kinds of these, these really cool metaphors for what our relationship with Jesus is. Is that, that Jesus um, stands at the door of our heart and he knocks, waiting to come in. He calls us by name out of the tomb. Um, he's, it says in John 1.12, but as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he's given the right to become children of God. He's given you all of these, these metaphors to talk about that he wants you to have a relationship with him. And in that relationship with him, it's an ongoing one for the rest of your life. And if you will follow Jesus, he will transform you and make you into a new person. It won't happen in one sermon at church. It'll happen of years of a long walk in the same direction. But I need you to know something. You can't walk that way until you make the choice to become a believer in Jesus. Some, some of us today, I need, I need you to know this. I love you. But you don't get a relationship with God based on the family you were born into. You don't get a relationship with God based on the church you're a member of. Or who your pastor is. You get a relationship with God when you hear the voice of God knocking at the door of your heart and you bring him in. And for some of you, you've done that a hundred times. I'm just calling you in. You don't need to do it again. You may need to rededicate your life to Christ. I get that. I'll quote Tony Campolo again. They asked Tony Campolo, Dr. Campolo, when did you give your life to Christ? And he looked at him and said, this morning. You know, he, he knew. He was saved already. But every day he was rededicating his life to Christ. But for some of you, November 5th is the day. Why would you miss your moment that God's calling you? That he's called you out of the tomb that you could say, I'm a believer in Jesus. This is your day. For some of you, God's calling you to, maybe it's, there's another step. You've already come out and maybe, maybe it's, I, yeah, I, I probably need to join a growth group. Or maybe my next step is, yeah, maybe I should get baptized. Or maybe whatever habit you have, you don't have it. It has you bad right now. And then, you know, maybe you need to go to the Tuesday night celebrate recovery and get some monkeys on steroids. Okay? But some of you, today's your day. Come out of the grave. God's calling you out. He loves you. He's not mad at you. He's greeting you with open arms, saying, I've got a life for you. A I, I, I want to bless your life. It's not going to be easy, but I'm going to point you my way. And the old is going to die and the 